Welcome, everybody. Um, I know most of you, but for those who don't know me, my name is Ed Schapa, and I'm the uh, head of Comparative Media Studies and Writing. And I'm very, very happy to introduce um, Jenny Strummer Galley to, uh, to you all tonight. I've known her for now 21 years. Oh my gosh, is that true? It's, that is true. <laughs> Maybe it's, you know, obviously, never mind. Uh, so, yeah, we've known each other for a long time. Wow. She, yeah, she is, uh, has her uh, bachelor's and master's from the University of Minnesota. And then she went to the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School of Four. Four Communication uh, for her PhD, and uh, has mostly hung out in the state of New York since then, uh, SUNY Albany for a decade. A decade, thank you. And now she's at Syracuse, where she is, among other things, director of the Center for Computational and Data Sciences, and she is also the. President. A reluctant president of the Association of Internet Researchers. Uh, that's good. I like that. Yeah. So my suggestion over dinner is do not ask her about that. No. So. Yes, exactly. Good choice. At any rate, uh, we've been planning to bring Jenny here for a long time, uh, knowing that she was doing research on the election and figuring that this timing would be interesting. And little did we know just how interesting it would be. So uh, <laughs> Indeed. I will stop talking and, and turn it over to Jenny. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you very much. I am really, really excited to be here. Um, just a fun fact, my very first published article is with Ed Chapa. And that formative experience uh, cemented my desire to get a PhD and continue on. Um, and so, you know, I owe a lot actually to Ed. He has been a good mentor and guide over the years. So I'm grateful to be here and um, happy to talk with you about the Illuminating 2016 project, which has turned out to be interesting on a set of dimensions we hadn't predicted when we first started this when we were looking at governors back in 2014. All right, so let me give you just a brief overview. So what I want to do is give you um, kind of a background of the current challenges that faced journalists as they're covering the 2016 election cycle, since this project is meant to help journalists to some degree. Um, I'll describe the project and how it works, and I'll show you the website and its capabilities, and I'll talk about some of the next steps of things we're building and some of the implications of our work for research. So this is um, this is a uh, this project will maybe. Well, let me say this. We're still in the middle of this, right? The election isn't over yet. So I don't have like big earth-shattering conclusions, but I've got things that I can show you that I hope you'll find interesting. And this ultimately is a design science project. It's activism. We're trying to make stuff and see how it works in the world. Um, and so part of this is really showing you what it is that we're making and how we're making it, what the purpose is, and what, we'll, what we hope will be some of the impact. Okay, so the problem we're trying to address, you know, in the 2017, um, Wait, yes, 20, sorry, in 2015, there were 17 Republicans, five Democrats, in, um, uh, and so lots of candidates that journalists had to cover. And of course, all of those candidates are constantly producing messages on Twitter and on Facebook, making it very tough for any particular reporter to make sense of all these messages and understand what it is that candidates are doing on social media from a larger perspective. Another big challenge is that uh, journalists, because it's hard to synthesize and understand what candidates are saying sort of over time on social media, what are the strategies and messages and tactics, they tend to focus then on single tweets. Sound familiar? Or provocative messages that then drive a story that fits an agenda that a journalist is, is 
or a story, I'll put it that way, that fits the media logics that reporters are operating in. But the problem is, is that when you focus on individual tweets or Facebook messages, um, you might, as a journalist, be presenting a view of the world that isn't actually accurate. Accurate. like that word. Accurate. Um, and so that's part of what we're attempting to do with this project. There are other challenges as well. Um, many reporters are looking to figure out what metrics are indicative of influence. So this is an um, example of the number of Twitter followers for the Republican candidates. This is back in September of 2015. I'll note that Trump is now up to about 12 million Twitter followers. Right, so based on this metric, the conclusion is what? What's the conclusion from this, just looking at this, at this beautiful bar chart? If you're thinking about influence in Twitter, what's the conclusion? More followers, more influence. More followers, more influence. Donald Trump is by far the most influential candidate in social media-verse. Here's another example. This is Facebook users interacting for each presidential announcement. So these are the candidates when they announce that they were running for president and the engagement or the interactions that are happening with the candidate on Facebook, on the candidate's Facebook wall. So the conclusion here is what? That's Hillary, that's Donald. Turns out Hillary Clinton's more influential. Wait a minute, what? Wait, 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 wait. We just said Trump is more influential. So this is some of the challenge for reporters and actually for researchers in trying to figure out what of these metrics do they tell us anything about influence on social media and, especially important, does, it, does any of this translate into electoral success? Does this mean that Hillary Clinton is going to become president on Tuesday? We don't know. So, oh yeah, and that's Bernie, by the way. <laughs> and so, another sort of interesting challenge when you're thinking about metrics. So the solution, there are many possible solutions for some of these challenges. The solution that we offer is this Illuminating 2016 project, which has the goals of categorizing the content, trying to get at the meaning in presidential candidate social media messages, and also characterizing and categorizing what the public is saying about the candidates on Facebook and Twitter. And then visualizing that data, because we have filled 13 servers full of social media messages. We just had to ask for another terabyte to get through the rest. Uh, we had asked for a terabyte two weeks ago to finish up the election cycle. And so how do you visualize all that data? You can't look at a single message and make sense of it. So how do you visualize all of those messages? So I have a question for you. Who do you think attacks more on Twitter and Facebook? Is it Clinton or is it Trump? How many of you say Clinton probably attacks more on Facebook and Twitter? Okay. How many of you say Trump attacks more? How come? So those of you who say Clinton, how come? Better Why for? Say again? Better social media management. Better social media management. Good hypothesis. Any other um, speculations? Yeah, please. So you're following, you're seeing the news feed, and it seems that there's a lot more attacking happening on Clinton. Okay, good. Those of you who said Trump, what drives that feeling? Journalists quote that more. Journalists, we, you know, uh, when you're reading news accounts about Trump, some portion of them include his tweets, suggesting um, that there might be some negativity there. 
Any other thoughts? Why Trump? I mean, the, the New York Times just published um, a two-page spread of every single person. <laughs> yes, the number of people, it's 250 or 300 people that he's insulted on Twitter over the last year or so since he's been running. So there's a sense that he is the most sort of negative, he attacks more. So the project, Illuminating 2016, um, I just did this uh, a little bit ago. So the purple is Hillary Clinton, the red is Donald Trump. This goes from January of this year through today. So what does this tell you? And this is the number of messages, this is combined Facebook and Twitter. Clinton attacks more and has Actually, I find this, see if my thing is working, it's not always working. And basically has since February, relative to Donald Trump. And actually, he's been relatively flat, except for in October, where there's a spike, whereas Clinton has kind of a nice increase, except for in August. Uh, sorry, um, yeah, no, August. Uh, which, there's a whole set of puzzling things happening in August, I'm still trying to figure out, please. And do each campaign tweet and interact on Facebook roughly amount? Like This is the total volume. Yeah. So as it turns out, and this is one of the things that's important to, I think this is what you're pushing at, Hillary Clinton actually is substantial, her account is substantially more active on Twitter and Facebook than Trump. So when you look at the overall number of messages that are produced by the two campaigns, Trump is just less active on social media, both Twitter and Facebook. Which goes back actually, somebody who had said, you know, the more um, professional ground game, the, the more staff, I think that actually, Clinton has more professional staff substantially more working on her digital media strategy than Donald Trump does, which probably explains part of what's happening here. Okay. So this could just show that she tweets more. Yes. Not necessarily that they're more as a fraction of the messages. I have other visualizations okay. to get exactly <laughs> to that point. Okay. Question? Go ahead. How are you defining attack? Very important question. Um, I'll, I'm going to dive into the categorization. The idea here is any message that is attacking the, uh, an opponent, any opponent, or some other on their policy positions, issues, um, image, character, etc. Please. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, are you crawling through this with an algorithm or are you looking at them? You lead me to my next point. Okay. So, and I please, as you have questions, don't hesitate to interrupt and say, wait, stop, what are you talking about right now? Um, um, I'm not going to dive deeply into the technological aspects. I'm going to give you overviews, but if you have specific questions, I'll do my best to answer them, but don't hesitate to ask. So how does this work? So as I mentioned, right, we had 17 Republicans, five Democrats. We have been collecting through Facebook and Twitter's APIs all of the presidential candidates' social media messages since they announced that they were running for president. We have collected all of their Facebook account messages, and we have collected all of their Twitter messages. And from the public, we are collecting all of the Facebook wall post comments for the candidates' accounts. So on Hillary Clinton's Facebook wall, we're pulling all of those comments. And actually, that's why we need the additional terabyte of data, because that is where the volume of, of messages is happening right now. On Twitter, we're collecting all of the at mentions and mentions, just <laughs> names of the candidates' clump. Clump, I keep doing it. Trump, Clinton, <laughs> at Hillary Clinton, at real Donald Trump. So this is coming through the API. So uh, we have built a, a collection system. It is publicly available. So if you are a social media geek and are looking for ways to collect social media messages, um, we have a GitHub repository. You're welcome to go play. 
So basically, through the API, we are um, pulling down social media uh, through a series of Python scripts. We then um, do some processing of that data. So there are repeat tweets, for example. There are deleted tweets that we need to manage because that's required of us of Twitter's API um, agreements. We um, eventually insert the Python data after some cleaning and, and queuing into a Mongo database. From there, it gets tagged on a set of categories, which I'll talk about next, and then is made available on our website. So in terms of the categories, and this is, in fact, a very important question. So here are two social media messages. Hillary Clinton has this post. Uh, this is Facebook. Every presidential nominee since 1976 has released their tax returns, but Trump has refused. How would you classify? What, if, you ha if you wanted to put this into a category of meaning, what might you classify it as? If you wanted to understand what the candidates are saying on social media, where would you start? Pointed critique. Critique. Pointed critique. <laughs> this is definitely a beautiful example of a pointed critique. So there is some sort of critiquing happening here. Now, one thing I have to just bracket, you won't, you, you haven't asked, but you might. We are collecting the images from Facebook. So we have all the images that are associated with the messages on Facebook. We do not for Twitter, for a variety of reasons. Um, the challenge for us with Facebook, uh, the challenge for us with images, we don't have any way to process them. So all of the analysis that I'll be talking about next is based only on the text, so do keep that in mind. Okay, so, so maybe this is a point of critique. So now we have Bernie Sanders, this is a tweet. To win this campaign, all of us must be deeply involved. Our movement needs people like you to help it succeed. Kind of a call to action. Okay. So, how many of you know this? What this image is? Yeah. What is this? Dukakis. It is Dukakis. And, and is Dukakis in what context here? What is this? It was, it was a camp, a very badly performed campaign stunt. Violating the first rule of campaigns, which is you never put a hat or funny something on your head. And so Michael Dukakis, in an effort to appear presidential and on top of military affairs, one of his issues of, of critique and challenge in the 1988 presidential election, um, rode around in a tank. The Bush, this is George Herbert Walker Bush campaign, um, seized on this and they cut an attack ad of Dukakis riding around this tank, and it's a fantastic ad because you hear this kind of creaky, creaky, creaky sounds of the of the the treads of the of the tank, and then uh, uh, as it sounds like he's sort of grinding the gears on this tank. Anyway, and it's this attack ad. So the reason I raise this is that we started. So if and again, the question is, is how do you make meaning out of the messages? We don't want to just look at retweets and shares and likes. That's easy. We want to understand what candidates are saying on social media. The messages matter to public opinion and the conversation that we're that we have been having for the past 17 months. And so we started with the presidential ads because it turns out that there has been a long history in communication research of categorizing candidates' television advertisements. And Facebook and Twitter messages, we think, are just another kind of advertising. So we started with the categories from TV advertising, but of course that's not enough because candidates do all kinds of other things on social media that they don't do in their TV ads. So in terms of categories, as you said, so we have a category of call to action. So these are messages where they're urging supporters to do something, typically. Give money, um, attend an event. We have actually a bunch of subcategories, turn out to vote, which now matters a lot. 
Um, there are informative messages. This is a funny category of basically messages that are not calls to action or the other set I'll be talking about, but are sort of neutral. So they, they're messages like, I'll be on CNN at 5 p.m. Those don't call anybody to action. They're not persuasive appeals. They're asking you to think differently about the candidate in some way. They're just sort of offering a fact. Ceremonial messages, go Cubs! <laughs> okay. It's conversational, is Twitter only? These are at replies. So if somebody tweets at the Donald Trump campaign and the, and the Trump campaign responds in some fashion, that's a conversational message. Trump does that, so we had to cut for that. Then on the persuasive side, we're looking at messages that are attempting to advocate for the candidate, so bolstering him or herself on two dimensions, image, so the personality and character lead, or issue, their policy positions, and the same with attack. So these, again, are attempts to criticize an opponent, sometimes the news media as well, and again, attacking on personality or character, attacking on issues. So when Donald Trump says, I'm gonna build a wall, believe it or not, we categorize that as advocacy issue. Um, when he says, you know, crooked, crooked Hillary um, is at it again, it's time for her to go to jail, that would be an attack on image. Okay, so, oh, and endorsements. Um, this is a personal curiosity. There's been a bunch of research and communication about the role that endorsements play. We want to see to the degree to which campaigns actually share and talk about those endorsements. A little small category. So then in terms of categorizing, this then is an attack message, and this is a call to action. Our movement needs actually the soft call to action. This would be a bit challenging for our, our algorithm potentially. Speaking of algorithms, how are we categorizing all these messages? Because we are categorizing the population. So every tweet that sits in the Mongo database gets tagged on one of those categories. So how do we do that? Well, we're using, actually I'm gonna lay this out. So we are using machine learning to do that work. So we originally started in 2014 with gubernatorial data. There were um, 75 candidates that we studied for that election cycle. Uh, 35 states had gubernatorial elections that year. We collected Facebook and Twitter. We used that as an initial corpus. Please. How did you fund that study? All for this love. No funds. No, no grants? Or no grants. Money? No, this research is really hard to fund. NSF isn't going to give us money to study politics. They don't do that. They don't touch politics. In fact, they're trying to defund political science as a discipline within NSF. So it is actually really tough to get research money for this. I, so, um, uh, eventually, I received, after begging and pleading the Knight Foundation to give us some money, oh, they would not, um, I was lucky to become a fellow at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. That fellowship came with a little pool of money. So this summer, I was able to fund uh, four PhD students for some help and um, hire the web company that actually made the website that I'll eventually show you guys. So this was just, hey, let's do some fun research together. And I've got really cool colleagues that just like to play with data and so yeah so that's how we did it so basically the long and short of it is that we're using machine learning um, we use uh, scikit-learn which is a Python based um, uh, uh, command line uh, machine learning package that um, we use to identify the different kinds of message features that are indicative of say calls to action or um, uh, um, attack messages. And this all starts with human coding. So we, to do machine learning, we're doing supervised machine learning, which means that we spent, oh God, I don't know, six months, give or take, um, having students look at samples of messages, code them independently in the categories, 
and then reconcile the differences until we had what felt to be the truth of that message. Then we fed the truth, if you will, in subsamples into scikit-learn to begin to identify what the, the document vectors and the text representation models are. So the, 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 the population of words, um, certain things, calls to action, for example, have particular structures to them. It turns out verbs are very important in call to action messages. And so those features become indicative of what is a call to action. And so eventually, that helps us build up these algorithms, um, and we add some additional features. So for example, it turns out knowing, with the governor's data in particular, knowing who the incumbent is as compared to the challenger improves our model by upwards of 8% on some of the categories. Um, we're working right now actually to feed in, and we've, we're building a matrix of who the opponents are for the presidential candidates. Um, that should help us improve the attack category because it turns out when candidates attack, they usually don't attack namelessly. Although some Bernie Hillary Clinton does, she attacked Bernie Sanders through implication, but not explicitly because she didn't want to alienate Sanders supporters. So that causes some troubles. But when Trump attacks, he names who he is attacking, and so that should improve our performance on attacks. Okay, so this is the performance, and I apologize, I played with this. Shoot, well you can still see. So Twitter is the left. That's the number of messages. What basically means is that it kind of an untrained algorithm performs at about 39%. So if you just feed in the, the, these messages um, sort of untrained without, uh, yeah, so we get 30% accuracy. Once we add the additional features, we look at the, at the, the population of words, etc., we begin to improve our performance. So basically an F1 score is an average of um, uh, precision and recall, and I, I won't go into those right now. That's, but anyway, the idea here is that calls to action, we are 80% accurate. So 80% of the time, we are correctly categorizing calls to action. However, ceremonial, only 40% of the time. Part of the problem is that it's very, oops, 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 sorry. Fat thumbs. Um, so there are not that many messages in our corpus that are ceremonial. And unfortunately, machine learning is quite sensitive to skewed data and we have a lot more trouble when you have fewer messages. And it turns out ceremonial is done in a lot of different ways, from Merry Christmas to Go Cubs to a number of things. Happy anniversary, sweetheart, et cetera, et cetera. And so that one's a bit more challenging. So where we're having trouble is actually, um, if I unpack strategic, attack and advocacy. Our advocacy um, uh, precision and recall, the average is at about 75%. We just had a come to Jesus moment where we discovered that our attack performance is actually at about 60%. So we had an emergency meeting this week to try to figure out how to improve that. Um, hopefully by Monday we'll have the improvements and we'll be back up to 75%. There's a story behind that I won't go into it right now. Facebook performs generally a bit better for us. The messages are longer and so you get more context to then accurately characterize the messages. Um, interestingly, when we had humans code the same messages, earlier when in that kind of first step of the process, um, we did measures of intercode agreement between two humans before they reconcile just to see how good of a job humans can do, how much they see the world the same way. Um, generally, our algorithm is now performing better than humans on these categories. So, and one of the nice things about machine learning is that the algorithm doesn't change over time and so bias is less likely to come into the categorizations. Okay, so how does the site work? So the Illuminating website, so this is a publicly available website that we have been promoting to journalists and the public to let them play with this categorized data. And so the Illuminating website has um, a set of categories on it that I just talked about that allow, that allow you to basically say, I want to see what Clinton is doing with calls to action. 
you can choose your platform. So you can pick Twitter or Facebook or a combination of the both, of them both. And you can pick your date range. So there's preset last month, last week, and then you can set a custom date range to see, you know, if you're really curious about something that happened during the primaries, you could take a look at that. And as I mentioned, we have all the candidates. So if you loved Bernie, for example, you could go back and see what Bernie Sanders was doing on social media when he was still a candidate. Um, oops. And so those are the, some of the features that are there. Um, in addition, we have put on the website the most shared messages to date. Um, controlling for the different size of followership. So Twitter, uh, Trump is at about 12 million, Clinton is at around, I think she's at seven and a half million right now. So we have to account for that because the larger the following, um, the more likely that any particular message is going to be shared. So we need to, to account for that. But you can then see the kinds of messages that are most likely to be tweeted and Facebooked. Um, there's some other features. You can download our data. So this is what the site looks like it's sort of if you're playing around with it. Um, so if you are working to see about the relationship of uh, Trump and Clinton on attack, but you didn't like our visualization, you could download it and then put it into, it, it downloads as a CSV file, and then you can play with the data yourself. You can also drill down, so let me go back, the view messages button there. So if you click on the view messages button, it allows you to see the messages on the categories and the time frame that you're looking at for those candidates. So you can see all the Facebook and Twitter messages for those candidates. So if you wanted to do a qualitative analysis looking at that, you could. Please. Is, is that in the CSV dump as well, or is that just the metadata? Aha, very good question. So Twitter's terms of use prevent us from sharing the message content um, in a downloadable file to CSV. Actually, Facebook doesn't, but we have, for the time being, it's only the frequencies or the ver basically the categories, um, the dates, those kinds of things. But what we do provide is the tweet ID. Once you have the tweet ID, then you yourself can go through the API and pull those tweets down yourself. So if you're clever, then that's your way around the little limitation that Twitter has set. Few other interesting features. We have been working very hard at categorizing the public comments. Um, it turns out that there's all, um, it's hard. <laughs> um, it was hard to get my humans to agree. We're using um, similar categories for the public comments as we have been the candidate comments. So we can do comparisons. Um, oops, let me not give the away here. So um, what we put up on the website so far is uh, this is on the candidates wall, so on Clinton's wall. This is August, September, and October. The messages on her wall that are statements of support as compared with statements of attack. Now here's the problem, and I was hoping this was going to be up to date. We have all the data tagged, but I, we're, I can't get the web guys to put it on the website. So the problem with this, what's the problem here? So again, this is Facebook messages comments on Clinton's wall, and this is a characterization of if the message is an attack or support. Any thoughts about what the problem is? Attack on whom? That's the problem. So we discovered, right, that a good portion of messages on Clinton's wall are attacks on Trump, not necessarily attacks on Clinton. And so we have to know the target 
of the message by the person who's commenting. Now, we have spent two laborious months getting that figured out and accurately tagging the target. We have that in the database, it's there, but it's not on the website yet. So I don't, I can't tell you, because this is what I'm desperate to know, how much of what's on Clinton's wall is actually attacking her? And how much is attacking Trump? I really want to know that. Because we see this funny, right, so there's more support for Clinton, well, there's more support, sorry, there are more support messages on Clinton's Facebook wall in September than there is in August or October. But is it support for her? Is it support for Trump? Is it support for something else? That's what I wanna know. And interestingly, we see this with Trump and I don't know why. So again, so there is consistently more positive or support messages for Trump than attack messages on his wall. I don't know why. Um, you'll note Twitter is not here. Uh, right, Twitter's not here. We've been working with Facebook. Twitter is just a, Oh, it, some of this is just hard. So we're still working. Okay, a couple other fun things. So I mentioned to you, so we've got other ways of visualizing the data. So the, that um, uh, bar chart that you can turn into a line chart is just raw numbers. This actually turns everything into percentages. So you can see then and hold account, kind of hold constant the volume to look at uh, and hold, anyway. So this is Trump and Clinton. Uh, this is uh, roughly about a week ago. On the issues, so on the category of issues, the candidates are advocating more than they're attacking on Facebook. So Facebook, they're advocating for their policy positions, for themselves as leaders, etc. It is the opposite on Twitter. They attack more on Twitter than advocate. And this is true, I've been playing with this data. This is true if you look a week ago, a month ago, through the last year. Twitter is where the candidates attack, and it's consistent for Trump and Clinton. They both are attacking more on Twitter than they are on Facebook. So platform matters. So researchers who are only looking at Twitter, and there are lots of them out there that are only looking at Twitter this presidential election cycle, you're missing a huge part of the story of what's happening in terms of strategic messaging, which is part of the reason why we picked multiple platforms. We originally also really wanted to analyze Instagram. Um, but again, the challenge for us at my lab is we don't have the capacity to analyze images. And without that, you miss most of the story of Instagram. So, um, but we have the images. We don't have them for Instagram. We decided that we were gonna spend our, our storage capacity, which we keep asking for, um, on, on the messages of the public than on images, because you have to make some choices there. Okay, so we also have been looking at share of voice. So now Twitter, I don't know if you guys watched during any of the debates, if you saw on Twitter, Twitter as a company was reporting something called share of voice. Share of voice is basically how much of the talk on Twitter is about X. In this case, how much of the share of voice is about Clinton or Trump. And of course, there's a number of different ways to measure that. The problem with Twitter is it's completely black box. We have no idea how it is that they are declaring the amount of talk that's happening on Twitter about any particular candidate or topic, which is always the challenge when you're dealing with these proprietary companies. So we're working with a, a professor in uh, Newhouse, the School of Communication, to, um, she, she came to us like pissed off because Twitter keeps doing this and she feels it's, it's potentially influencing people's opinions around debate. She's like, we have to have our own. And I said, well, we're already collecting the data. She said, well, then make a freaking pie chart. I said, okay, we can do that. So we have pie charts and we've got line graphs. So this is share of voice. This is um, the last seven days, but going back just a tidge. This is around the last debate. So this is um, the hashtags. Now, which hashtags? Now this turns, there's a whole art to picking hashtags. So if you've been doing research on social media, 
and you're doing hashtag research, hashtags morph, they keep changing, there are new ones. So we decided for the moment, just as a starting place, to collect the hashtags that were the most closely associated with the official campaign. So for Donald Trump, that is MAGA. Do you know what MAGA stands for? Make America Great Again. And of course, it had been Make America Great Again, but it's Twitter. It's only 140 characters, so over time it morphed into MAGA. Like a weird war cry. Um, Hillary Clinton has been, I'm with her, pretty much since day one on social media. So this is the last seven days, um, and you can see that over this last seven days, there's much more talk on Trump's hashtag than there is on Clinton's hashtag. When you look at, oops, oh, what did I do? Oh, that's dumb. Okay, never mind. I have another view that looks at the the at um, the um, uh, accounts, the, the talk on the accounts, and in fact, so here's a, a different view. Now, this is actually the first debate. So what we have been seeing is that whether it's the hashtags or this is what I want to show you, I've accidentally with that. So we're also collecting, of course, the messages about Hillary and that at mention Hillary or at mention Trump on Twitter. And generally, if you look over the last seven days, the last week, the last um, four, four months, there typically is much more talk on Trump's hashtag. There's much more talk about Trump on Twitter. This first debate, you see that Clinton reaches parity. In fact, there's a period of time when, when there is more talk about Hillary Clinton in that first debate. Um, interestingly, when you looked, I don't have this, I don't have a picture of this, but when we looked at the same issue, and the same sort of view at the second debate, there was much more talk on Trump than there was on Clinton. The third debate, Clinton is close in terms of the amount of talk on her, if you will, um, but not quite as much as the first. And I noticed actually that this week, Clinton is back at parity, that there is as much talk about Trump, sorry, as much talk about Clinton on these metrics as there's about, um, I don't know if I just said Trump and Clinton, about the same, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Did you look at who was doing the talking, whether it was Hillary supporters or Trump supporters? No, we don't have any way to classify that. Now we have, I shouldn't say that, um, it is possible doing network analysis to begin to see if we can sort of be identify Clinton supporters and Trump supporters. We have not done any moves in that direction as of yet. It's a great question, right? So what are they talking about? Um, are they in support? Are they against? What is this about? Don't know. But if you think about share, part of what Twitter um, sort of talks about in terms of shared voice is that this sort of suggests the thing that people are energized about. And so if this is a measure of energizement or excitement, whether it's positive or negative, um, in this last week going into the election, um, there is more energy. In fact, I can show you the live one. So this is, oh, stop that. Sorry, let me get out of presentation mode. Perhaps. Get out. Get out. Oh, I see why. No, really, get out. <laughs> Hold on. Not only that, but I've lost my cursor. Really? Come on, machine, you can do this. Okay. Oh, there we go. Okay, so let me show you that. So this is a live website. Um, and so you can see here, in terms of the talk, and actually, I've got concerns about this. 
Um, there's just so much more talk on Make America Great Again as a hashtag than there is on, on I'm With Her, in part because I think this is a broader, more generic hashtag. So people who may not even really be Trump supporters or energized by Trump might be posting on Make America Great Again. But I'm With Her is so clearly Clinton's, right? It's, it's this slogan that she has been advocating on Twitter. And so there's something about the relationship there of those two hashtags that I think is important to keep in mind. But this is, again, just the at mention. So Clinton has been basically uh, talked about almost as much as Trump. And so I think that's kind of interesting. And if you look over time, this is share of voice the last four months. You can see um, that Clinton is, has had more increase. But if you drill it down into the last uh, seven days, they're almost at parity. OK. Um, so then let me go back into presentation mode, perhaps. Is there a question? No? OK. You monster. Sorry, you did this way. No, I don't want that, though. Sorry. You guys are going to be like, fire her. Oh, right, you're not paying me. I can't be fired. Okay, so what I want to show you back then is this. All right, let me go back there. Right then. So um, in terms of next steps, a couple of things we've been laboriously agonizing over for months is sentiment analysis. Anybody ever played around with sentiment analysis? What have you been doing with sentiment analysis? What do you know about sentiment analysis? Uh, a couple different ways to approach it. I mean, you can go the simple way, categorizing your words and basically attributing positive, negative, or neutral sentiment to it. Yep. But the question becomes, the words change their meaning within context, so you ultimately have to actually do a linguistic analysis on top of it. Yes. So, um, and it turns out that on some topics, you can get fairly accurate, 65, 70% accurate on sentiment um, just by using the bag of words, the lexicon approach. Politics, the best I've seen is about 65%. Um, we, we, I have a PhD student who's particularly interested in sentiment, so for the last year she's been playing with this with uh, four different lexicons. So applying, lex so lexicons just bags of words. And um, one, Luke, for example, was built by psychologists. So if you were a psychology, sociolo uh, psychology sophomore, you might get a list of 100 words, just, just words. And you would indicate if that word was positive or negative. So you'd see cloudy. And you might go, oh, no, cloud is kind of negative. And you might see violin, which is actually in the list. And you might go, hmm, violin's positive. Now, I might say violin is positive. Maybe you were a violin. Maybe your mother made you practice violin when you were 10 and you hated it. And so for you, violin is slightly negative, which is one of the problems. Because it's about latent meaning, right? There's all this connotative stuff that happens with words in themselves, right? If I say cat, I like cats. So cat for me is positive. For how many of you is cat negative? <laughs> I knew this. So when cat's negative and you see that word, just on the face of it, you already have a different sort of feeling. So is that positive or negative? Well, it depends on the person. So that's one of the problems with sentiment is that it is um, recipient dependent. And then on top of that, it's context dependent. So, you know, again, cloudy um, to describe the day would be neutral, but I'm having a cloudy day would be negative. And so that becomes a huge problem with sentiment analysis, which is why it's basically snake oil, as far as I can tell. I've not really seen really good sentiment analysis. So why are we beating our heads up on this? I don't know. Um, so, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, well, so, mm, I'll stop. 
So, okay, so positive, negative, neutral. So, you know, looking at these words, as I was just talking about, so crooked and worse would be sort of negative messages. Um, Bernie Sanders, he voted, maybe neutral, maybe positive. So we've also been thinking about, instead of doing positive, negative, neutral, doing emotion. And actually, we have a PhD student who just completed her dissertation where she built a whole new set of lexicons to characterize emotion. And her lexicon, her algorithm is actually quite good at identifying anger. This election cycle, anger is kind of a good one to measure. So we've been playing around with that a bit too. We haven't gotten very far. It's a different way of thinking about sentiment. My own sort of hunch, what we've been working on recently, is taking the attack and advocacy categories. My hypothesis is that attack messages are more likely to be negative on that sentiment and scoring, and that advocacy messages are more likely to be positive. And so if you could use that as a base, then perhaps you could increase the accuracy. I don't know. We can't even get our humans to agree when they look at messages what the valence is. So it, it's, um, it's a bitch. Okay. Topics. So we have been, I had hoped that by now we'd have topics on the website. We're not there yet, but we're really freaking close. Um, so one of the things we've been doing interviews with journalists to try to understand what they need to be able to do reporting about this election cycle. And one of the things that they say to us is what would be really cool is to be able to pull up all the messages that Donald Trump has said about immigration over this election cycle. Now you can do keyword searches on Google or on Twitter and pull messages, but then it requires that Donald Trump has used the word immigration. But he often talks about building a wall. A wall on the face of it is not immigration. So keyword searches means that you miss a lot of the messages that are actually on the topic. So we have been building lexicons, laboriously, painfully building lexicons to categorize nine different topics. Um, we initially started, <laughs> oh. so we've done, we've tried a variety of different ways to figure out what the seed words is. That is, what are the words that are gonna make up a immigration lexicon? Um, and so we eventually settled on, after flailing for quite a while, collecting all of the debate transcripts that happened during the primaries for the Republicans and the Democrats, and then pulling um, the frequency, the most frequent words that are sort of around any particular topic on these nine categories to build an initial seed list. But it turns out the journalists only ask about certain kinds of topics. They don't ask about other kinds of topics. So Republicans, they tend actually not to ask much, nor was there much talk on social issues during the debates. It was war, immigration, economy, very little, uh, veterans affairs, very little on foreign, actually some on foreign affairs, very little on domestic programs. So we went to the candidates' websites and we pulled their issue positions. We categorized them on the nine topics, then we pulled and extracted the common words there, minus a bunch of stop words, etc. So we are, I just hired four undergrads to now do a bunch of help for us to um, see whether or not our lexicons are pulling the correct messages and identifying them correctly. So I'm hoping in a week we'll have a good sense of whether or not these lexicons are working. So, but it's challenging to accurately reflect topics. So whenever Donald Trump starts talking about public safety, it's often wrapped up in also immigration and economy. And so we've decided after much pain to allow multiple topics um, when you allow multiple topics, uh, you can then sort of increase the likelihood of false positives. That is stuff that comes in that actually isn't related. So we have some concerns there, but we'll see how that works. But this is coming. My hope in two weeks is we'll have this on the website. And as I mentioned, this is ultimately a design science project. 
as well as ultimately, I hope, a social science project. So we've been interviewing journalists, we've done focus groups with them, um, trying to understand what their needs are, what it would take for them to be able to use this site. Because if it is the case that candidates in, um, that single tweets don't reflect what it is that candidates are actually doing on social media, then a site like this potentially could help the public to better understand what candidates are doing and saying and to provide a useful tool for research for journalists who may not have the resources in their own um, institutions to do this kind of work. Um, one of the things we've been observing is that journalists are not taking up this project. They're not using this website. Um, and I think part of the problem is that this becomes another something that they have to use. And this project is meant to look across time. Most reporters are focusing on the event happening right now. And so what we're offering is good if you're doing long-form journalism where you're, you're now sort of stepping back and trying to understand a phenomenon that has already happened. But in the moment, this site turns out to not be quite as helpful as I was originally hoping it would be. But there's still time. Um, so we're also, again, going back to this question about influence. So one of the things I want to try to better understand coming out of this work is what kinds of indicators are predictive of electoral success, if any. And there may not be any. It may be that what candidates do on social media just has no direct correspondence to electoral votes or things like that. We have been playing around actually with public opinion polling data. Um, we had a conference paper at the Association of Internet Researchers um, and a, a different one looking at the governor's election, looking at, um, sorry, a conference paper in the World Association of Public Opinion Research looking at governors, the governor's data that we originally tagged and um, public opinion polling data. And we find pretty strong relationships actually between what the candidates are doing on social on a couple of the category types and public opinion polling. But we're doing more work and I don't, um, I, I'm not comfortable yet with our conclusions, especially with the discovery that attack in our paper analysis wasn't very strong. Um, that is about a third to a fourth of the messages are incorrectly tagged. So that's a problem in terms of wanting to make big claims. So I'm not ready to make big claims, but mm, maybe in a month I'll be able to make some claims. So metrics, public opinion polling data, um, and other things are possible out of this research. So now Ed had asked, you know, who, how, where does this come from? This is all basically people volunteering their time and energy to help make this project go with, a, again, support from the Tau Center for Digital Journalism. I am lucky to be director of the center. Uh, computational data sciences, so we do have a paid staff programmer who's been doing a lot of the machine learning work for us. App Hammer is the web development company, and then a lot of students who just like geeking out with data. So that's the project. What questions um, can I answer for you? Oh, for flipperty jibberty, sorry. I keep forgetting to stop the presentation. And it won't just let me leave. You can't just leave. That is not allowed. Okay. Back to the site. All right, questions. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, fascinating. I mean, this is incredible work you're doing. And um, Thank you. one thought that I have is that if you're trying to get the attention of the uh, news media, then if you did a content analysis on a paper, yeah. or by journalists, I think you'd get their attention really quickly. You mean if I were to, when you say do by, a content analysis of, a, of the paper, what do you mean? By topic or right. by sentiment. 
Right, right, right. Or both? Yeah. And then fed that back to them? Yeah. We have had success, so we have been writing um, analyses on our own. And when we do this, um, uh, especially there's a, do you guys know the website, The Conversation? Some of you do? So The Conversation, basically, it's, um, it's a website for academics to write up work that they're doing that might be hot or current. Um, and then they actually have professional journalists who edit that work and make it available to um, the public. The conversation, when you publish something there, it's licensed under the Creative Commons licensing rules, which means that all kinds of other media outlets pick it up. So um, there was an article that wrote on this negative, so the fact that Clinton attacks more than Donald Trump, we wrote that for um, uh, the, mess the conversation, and that got picked up by over a dozen online news sources, for example. So when we do the writing, yeah. um, we are having success getting this out. But on, on its own, I've seen a couple of articles, uh, Mashable, for example, a reporter from Mashable used the site to do an analysis. Um, somebody has used the site to look at, kind of, again, to look at the messages to then do some carefuler, more carefuler, a more careful analysis of something that they're interested in. But I was hoping for more uptake. Um, than we received. One of the things that um, one of our interviews suggested is that if on the website, on the homepage, um, if we had some fun facts, for example, at the top, that could be a starting place then for a reporter to dive in, that that might be helpful to them. But I guess this is the, or, as a researcher, I'm always curious about data. So my first impulse is to just begin playing. I kind of pose a question to myself and I play and I see what the answer is. I'm not sure that journalists, especially beat reporters who are used to interviewing people, quite know what to do with data or information in this form, in this way. They're used to talking to people and getting the results and their stories that way. And so playing with data in this way. Now, what I do know is that like the New York Times, for example, and others do have data journalists on staff who their job is to play with data in this form and then help support journalists who are writing stories. They're definitely playing with this data, and I've gotten some feedback of ways we can improve the experience for them, which is why there's now the download feature. Um, there's now there's this little icon here um, on the top. So if you don't like the way that we visualized it, you can download um, in different styles, etc. So you, basically, so journalists can play with the images themselves if they wish to. So those are things that we've gotten as feedback, which is, means that they're looking at it, but again, translating that into actual reporting, we're not seeing quite as much of. I think you know, the issue may be less actual discomfort with playing with that and more like what is the story? Right? Yes. Uh, yes. That's, I think, probably um, more crucial in terms of engaging journalists. And if I'm getting this right, what you're maybe hoping to a little hypothesize, depending on what happens in the election, is can we like establish a link between social media activity and election outcomes? Right? That's sort of the meta story. It's it's one of one of the questions for us, and that's actually for us as researchers. So that's less about the data journalism side and the data and sort of this digital journalism process. But for us, for me, I want to know because reporters call me all the time. So what should I be looking for? Does retweets is that the thing that I should be looking for? Especially during the primaries when there were seventeen candidates running on the Republican side. Well, so I think I mean what is interesting just because you know social media is, is generally discussed as an unmediated way, right? Yeah. to voters, so this is sort of an interesting twist on how journalists can use this to make stories, so that's interesting. But also, I mean, just one thing that struck me is I don't know if you uh, read that report that came out of the Shorenstein Center um, a few months ago, which was about journalist coverage of the invisible primary. 
which no. is so the invisible primary went the year before the primaries and how did basically essentially the hypothesis was um, the fact that the media covered Trump so significantly in a period when he was actually polling very low, right. they might have contributed to yes. his rise. That was sort of the thesis of yep. the report and they looked at and analyzed using sort of similar metrics. Um, his coverage in during the invisible primary and the argument was particularly in the beginning window when he was not doing well. Yep. He had um, you know an unusual amount of coverage. And one thing I think was interesting from what you were showing is that even in those early stages when he might have been polling low, if you're tracking his influence by his social media presence, it was already, you know, off the charts. Um, and so that might be because journalists really pushed back against that choice to report and they're saying he was the story, he was unusual, he was different. Well, we're supposed to be not, not, cover, not cover him, right? Default of his rise, you're discounting a lot of other really significant things that were yeah. happening, and I won't go into the weeds. There's a lot of questioning of other methodological aspects, but that might be an interesting insight. Yeah, actually, we just um, so the inter for those of you, I don't know if any of you guys do, I see the International Communication Association annual conference. We just proposed a paper for that, um, trying to understand why Trump ended up becoming the Republican nominee. So we've got this data. What we don't have is the news coverage. And so part of the, the next step now is collecting news coverage, um, which has to include broadcast, the cable um, stations, as well as print, um, and doing the content analysis of the news media's coverage. I'm interested, actually, the degree to which the news media was referencing Trump's tweets in some of that early coverage as well, because that might and whether or not the style of his tweets, uh, we want to compare him with Bush and Jeb Bush because right, Jeb Bush was supposed to be the Republican nominee. Um, and so especially that, uh, I would call it the surfacing stage, but the invisible primary stage, um, that period of time, what was Bush doing? What were Marco Rubio and, and Ted Cruz doing who ended up surviving almost to the end um, relative to Trump in terms of style and then in terms of coverage to see if there's a relationship there that we can tease out. So, but I will definitely read the Shorenstein Center because it sounds like they've been thinking about the same question, and so I'm going to see and what they've been doing. I encourage you if you read the report to, it's on the internet watch. Um, they did an, an event to allow sort of journalists to talk back to like Marty Barron, the Washington oh. Post, and a lot of people, um, well, Ariana Huffington, who supported a lot, and Marty Barron, who attacked it, hmm. conclusions, and they had a very interesting debate pushing back on some of the conclusions. So okay, yeah, I'll definitely, thanks. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, please, go ahead. Uh, thanks very much for the so much interesting stuff here um, thanks. To, to think about. Um, just as sort of, a, I suppose, a counterpoint to the last question, I, I think the thesis is that um, in the surfacing stage and in the primary, the media were quite complicit in potentially helping Trump. I yeah. saw Jeff Zucker speak at Harvard a, few, a couple of weeks ago, and he was semi-apologetic about his role in that. Um, hmm. It is a you know, counting for his own professional sort of interest. Right. Um, but the, the odd sort of counter-thesis now in the general stage and this seems to hold a bit of weight when you look at the polling, is that it, when it's been Hillary versus Trump, mm -hmm. the candidate who's not in the news has actually been doing better. Um, and yes. that's probably a unique phenomenon to this um, this race, but it's definitely worth thinking about in terms of what we assume that attention means. Yeah, no, you're quite right. I mean, this strategically, Clinton's approach coming into the general election was to basically let Trump be Trump, which from their calculations meant that he would end up burning um, and I think to some degree, tactically, that was the right move to make, except for the last week when <laughs> that calculus changed on them. Um, but you're quite right about that. And so, in, in so the stages of the campaigns really, really matter. So um, paying attention to that surfacing stage or the, the 
Shadow primary, interesting. Um, Innsville primary versus the the um, actual primary stage versus the convention stage, and then moving into the the general election. Um, the tactics change, the reporting changes, the the money changes. All that stuff has to be paid attention to. I appreciate that. Yes, please. Well, the other part of the problem with uh, Twitter and a large national election is you don't know where this talk is coming from geographically either, do you? You don't know whether it's coming from a battleground straight state, which is really important, or whether it's just coming from an already convinced and almost uh, impossible to reach state. So it could be disproportionately uh, you know, distributed in uh, more important or less important Correct. areas. So I mean, it, it doesn't really predict as much Amen. Uh, in particular. Absolutely. So um, uh, I have some really interesting colleagues in computer scientists, in, in computer science, who, and I, I think this, I think this is passed. I hope it's passed. But sort of naively thought that Twitter, because it is easy to collect data um, in the computer science world, that you could use that to predict elections. But of course, actually, you guys might know this. What percentage of the American public is using Twitter presently? Internet using public. You got it. What about Facebook? Higher than 50, lower than 90. About 75%. So think about that. Right? Roughly 25% of the internet accessing public in the United States is on Twitter, which is where I see a lot of the, the sort of let's do predictive work is with Twitter data because it's easier to some degrees. It, you can study message spread on Twitter in ways you can't with Facebook just because the nature of the affordances of Twitter retweets and shares allow you to then track kind of who is retweeting. You can see that relationship, that spread, so you can do network analysis really easily. Facebook is harder um, in part because people have private accounts. And so I can collect everything that's said on the candidate's Facebook wall, but then if I collect those accounts and then want to go collect those accounts to see what they're doing, most of them are private. And so I can't collect that data. So on Twitter, because it's all public, you can do that sort of network analysis. On Facebook, you can't. And so that then makes it much harder to do this predictive work to see, well, what's the relationship between Facebook and Twitter in terms of, or in terms of Twitter and spread and Facebook and spread and the relationship between that and these outcome measures like electoral success. Um, but just because Twitter's easy doesn't mean it's accurate. And that problem is the people using Twitter are journalists, celebrities, and the news media. My students are not using Twitter. I would say maybe 15% of my undergrads are using Twitter. So that's not where the public is. Um, we do actually have geotagging information. So there are people who, um, for reasons that escape me, allow their tweets to be geotagged. So, and we do have that data, but again, it's only about 8% of the data set. Actually, I don't, that's the last time we paid any attention to this, which was quite a while ago. And those numbers do fluctuate in terms of who's allowing geotagging. So we could look at that and see what's going on, but it's such a small percentage that there's really just no point from my point of view to look at that closely. Yeah, please. Um, just from what you had brought up, does that mean are you guys ignoring private Twitter accounts just because like correct? We can't collect them. Age. We're not so collecting. Yeah. So if if they're if they're private, we're not getting them. Okay. And same again, people delete tweets. Um, we are under obligation under Twitter's um, terms of use to make sure that we then delete those tweets from our databases as well. I have a colleague, Jeff Hemsley, who really wants to do a study on the deleted tweets. Um, but you can only, so we risk having our API cut off if we do. Um, and so you can kind of an aggregate, but you have to be really careful. And I'm, at the moment, I'm not interested in playing with that, that fire. 
So logistical rather than substantive questions. So you had about 15 student names up there that worked for the yeah. project. First of all, how many were undergraduate versus grad, roughly? Those were all, um, so those guys, um, so these guys, so these are all masters or PhD. Okay. The undergrads I just hired. Okay, second question. Are they doing this, uh, I'm assuming they're not doing it just you know, in their spare time as a hobby, so is it part of, are they, doing it as part of their research assistantship. I, I'm just interested in the infrastructure of research. Yeah, yeah no, there's, okay, so, right, so let me, I'll, let me walk back a claim that I made that you're pushing on. So, and I'm glad that you are, because it is important in thinking about the resources for this, because while we're, we are not, um, we're not getting a lot of external support, the school itself is producing a lot of support for this. So we, we have a large paying master's program um, in the School of Information Studies. So. Um, students come to the School of Information Studies, they get a master's degree that they pay for, and it's a lot of money that they're paying, um, to get a degree in information management, IT management. And then they go get jobs at Deloitte and & Touche or Ernst & Young and make buku bucks, um, and uh, life is good and they can pay back their debts. Um, one of the things that the iSchool does is a portion of the students um, can compete to work for 10 hours a week with faculty. So almost all of these master's students we're working 10 hours a week um, for me for free. Sorry, I hope I didn't just bugger that up. Is that okay? Um, so the school is paying $10 an hour um, up to, uh, I don't know, 16 weeks in the semester for them to work on projects. So that's most of the master's students. The PhD students, they're all, um, this is their, their PhD assistantship. Um, my director of graduate studies likes me, and so I keep getting PhD students. I've managed to not piss them off yet, so we're good. Yeah, and then my faculty, um, so Jeff Hemsley, Brian Simon are both assistant professors, and they are data geeks. Um, in fact, Jeff is the one who built the GitHub collection system, um, and so they just like playing with data, so that's been fun. And they're assistant professors, they need publications, and this is a great data set to get data publications out of. Nancy McCracken's uh, uh, sort of a research scientist, um, she's on staff. She's our machine learning expert, so she's the one we can go to for consultation. Lauren Bryant is my former PhD student. Um, she's just doing this for the love of research. Um, uh, there's no pay there. And actually, Patricia Rossini, who's here, she's a PhD student in Brazil um, who came and studied with me for a semester uh, two years ago. And um, again, love of research and the possibility of publications, since that's the coin of the realm in the academia. And I think the other meta message here is that it takes a team, it takes a village, you know. With, the, the with very different skills. Exactly. Very, right, so Jeff and Brian are fantastic at playing with the data, and Brian, so Brian got his PhD in computer science, Jeff got his PhD in information studies, um, mostly focused on data collection and analysis. He wrote, co-wrote a book with Crenan on um, virality, and so in uh, Twitter specifically. So they are fantastic because they bring a technological skill set, but I bring the communication theory and a long, because I've been at this quite a while, a long knowledge of political campaigns and how they work. And so you get this lovely peanut butter meets chocolate. You have the theory, you have the methods, um, you have these different techniques, and now you can really make cool stuff together. Definitely. But it does take a village to do a project like this. The real question for us is, what do we do next? 
And I don't know yet. Um, I want to keep. I'm going to keep this website up. So again, you can go to illuminating.ischool.syr.edu. Play with this. Um, this is again publicly available. You are welcome to do anything you wish with the data. Um, if you do any publications, we ask you to attribute the site um, because that's just helpful for us to know. Um, we are uh, again adding things like topic. We'll keep playing with sentiment. We're still working to improve the category performance on some of these variables and we are, um, we'll keep working on the public comments as well and getting those up. So this site's gonna go, stay up, we're gonna add more stuff to it. We're currently in the process right now. AppHammer was the company that built the website for us. We're transitioning that now to the center, so we'll be maintaining the site. But I see all kinds of cool applications. So one of the things I've been daydreaming, I shouldn't even tell you this because you're gonna steal it, but one of the things I've been thinking about is taking some of these categories to then apply to uh, disasters. So when there are natural disasters occurring, people do turn to social media. So think about Sandy. When Sandy hit New York, people turn to social media, especially Twitter, because it's very public. First responders were watching Twitter to see where people were identifying problems, where there were power outages, damages, people who were stuck and trapped. And so could we use some of these categories? Um, we have to reimagine them, we'd have to retrain them. But could we then use them to help first responders do some pre-sifting of messages of things they need to pay attention to first to prioritize? Go ahead. Yeah, there's a, there's a great paper on that that looked at tweet centering Sandy. Yes. Graham, and the sort of counterintuitive finding it had was that actually areas that were had power completely cut off were kind of shadows of tweets. There weren't many tweets coming from there because Correct. there was just no power. There was no power, so um, people couldn't. Whereas the felt under Midtown, you know, from sort of, um, LTE, whatever, they couldn't shoot about. Yes. So there's, interesting inequities kind of built into both the over-representation of the network, but then also when these things happen, what happens after that? Yep. No, and that, and that becomes one of the challenges, and yeah. we can't solve that problem at all. Um, but the degree to which we might be able to apply this to different contexts, um, we will absolutely do this again in 2018. So coming into the next kind of major federal election cycle, people have said to me, especially for reporters, um, if we could do stuff at the mayoral level, then newspapers might be more interested. But Social media isn't where campaigning is happening for mayoral races or even actually sort of state legislature races. It's, you know, social media becomes important at the federal level when you've got national conversations happening. And so that um, is a limitation when you want to play with social media data. So, yeah, go ahead. Why go ahead. isn't social media important at the local level? Well, so, and, you know, I'm saying this a bit flippantly because I, I have not done enough research to really back that claim that I just made. Um, the volume, however, is much, much smaller. And so, the, because you're dealing with a, um, so if it's a mayoral election, now Philadelphia, major cities, right? So New York, Philadelphia, um, Houston, actually that might make some sense because there is a lot of activity and many people are paying attention to that who may or may not actually be connected to that election cycle. But Syracuse, New York, um, look, 60% of Syracuseans live in poverty. Um, if, they're, if they're engaged in politics, it's on the street. Um, there is social media use happening, but the volume is much less. These algorithms don't work when you're dealing with small ends. That is when there's 100 tweets or 500 tweets, the variety of different messages happening, we can't accurately categorize them. And so that's some of the challenge for us technologically. And I also don't, still at the local level, what matters is not tweets, what matters is door knocking and talking to people and being at the rally. And so those kinds of, of things, which is tangible people on the ground, 
not sort of playing around on their computers. Yeah, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the idea that you could help to um, develop a profile for an organization or for an individual. And I'm reminded of my conversations with my friend who's a, he's in genomics. And so he's yeah. analyzing these mega data sets yeah. to try to figure out relationships between diabetes, heart disease, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so you guys, I think, are sort of on the cusp of, you know, you're at the very start of, you know, a big area, I think, where you could really analyze these things and as you get your algorithms down and get them better and better, wow, that would be huge. You know, imagine being able to feed back to, you know, a candidate who says, you know, that I'm generous and, uh, you know, I'm not racist and, <laughs> you know, all that. I'm not a sexist, you know, but, and then, you know, well, here's what the data says. Yeah. Based on, because the right. tweets don't lie. I mean, you know, yeah. you're, well, the conversation. So, you know, what we this allows us, I think, to get potentially. So, how do I put this? I am really interested, to some degree, in public opinion, and just our traditional measures of public opinion are surveys. We call people up and we ask them, you know, tell me what you think. Um, but in in the age of cell phones, it's much much harder to get good samples. Pollsters are finding ways around that panel data and things like that, but there are troubles there with public opinion. And the degree to which we could use these kinds of social listening tools to get another way of thinking about what the public is talking about. Now, of course, the problem is that people are thinking about things that they don't say. And so we can't gain access to that. But the degree to which the conversations that are happening on social media then shape the national conversation, shape what the news media is saying, shapes what we then kind of bring home and talk about with our families, I think we have ways to begin to understand what is what are those conversations about in a much more sensitive way than just the number of messages or positive or negative, which is crap anyway. Um, and so I've been thinking about this as sort of the next generation of social listening tools that allow us to understand in a more nuanced way what's actually being discussed and how. You mentioned earlier that one place you looked at for forming categories were the debates. And um, I, if you're familiar with this, then, then cut me off. But um, Bill Benoit. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yep. He, okay. Yep. Well, for the rest of the audience, <laughs> uh, he did a series of books that that did a fairly deep dive in terms of content analysis, but yes. no computers, no algorithms, just counting uh, of, uh, of of the texts of various presidential debates. And it yep. was the same kind of thing where they're categorizing types of claims. Correct. That. It, your categories kind of reminded me of his are, are different, but they're not There's and, and so this, so the categories um, and also the topic work is informed by Bill's work. Okay. So yeah, having lived that literature for a long time, it's definitely shaped the way I think about what the candidates are doing on social. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Well, it's about 6.15. I don't know about you guys, but it's dinner time. And it's definitely beverage time. So thanks. I really appreciate the conversation. You were a very attentive audience. You asked good questions. Nobody threw tomatoes, so that always makes me happy. And so thanks.